We are finishing the book of Ezekiel tonight. And, uh, and because we're finishing this book tonight, I felt like I needed to get kicked off with, uh, with something that was applicable. So watch the screens. What are you doing up here? I thought you were downstairs boxing chocolates. Oh, they kicked me out of there fast. Why? I kept pinching them to see what kind they were. <laughs> This is the fourth department I've been in. Oh, I didn't do so well either. All right, girls. Now, this is your last chance. If one piece of candy gets past you and into the packing room unwrapped, you're fired. Yes, ma'am. Let her roll! Well, this is easier. Yeah, we can handle this, okay? I love watching your faces because some of you were really enjoying that and some of you looked like, am I in the right room or what? So, what does this have to do with the book of Ezekiel? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely other than this. This is how I feel when I'm trying to go through these major prophets. When you're trying to go through a book of Ezekiel, there is just so much there. We've already spent four weeks in the book of Ezekiel. Tonight will be the fifth week we spent. And we could spend five months in Ezekiel and never really get to everything that's there. And so my challenge in going through these books with you is always what do I spend time on? What do I skip over? How, you know, how much time should I spend on this? How much time should I just kind of skim the surface and move on because it feels like that conveyor belt of stuff is coming. And I'll sit down in my desk and I'll start reading through these chapters and I'll go, oh, that's good. We got to deal with that. And then, oh, this is good. We really have to. And before long, it's like a verse by verse study and you just can't do that. So, uh, so we've been trying to, to keep up with the conveyor belt and we're going we're gonna to end the conveyor belt on Ezekiel this evening. This is the book we're studying. This is to help you remember the book of Ezekiel, the Tau, E-Z, Ezekiel. The skeleton is drying off his bones, getting his bones dry and that's because like the story we talked about when we finished last week, the, the Valley of the Dry Bones is about how God wants to restore his people even though they're going to suffer this exile, even though they disregarded him, refused him to the point where he had to send Babylon in to destroy the city and carry him off into exile. Even though they did all that, his heart is still to restore the dry bones. The, and, and in this book, we didn't point this out, but there was a valley, a massive amount of dry bones. And they were, it, scripture doesn't say they were dry, it says they were very dry. And so God's point is, even though these bones are very dry, even though these people are very sinful, even though they are so far away from me, even though there's no spiritual life in them, it is my desire to resurrect them, to breathe into them. And so this helps you remember the book of Ezekiel is all about that. Remember also we talked about Ezekiel being one of the four major prophets. Major meaning big book one of the four big prophets because they wrote extensively there's a lot of information there and so it starts with Isaiah 
who is part of the royal family when he starts prophesying. And then we went to Jeremiah, who is really a prophet that prophesied in Jerusalem all the way up to the exile and afterwards. And so he prophesied in Jerusalem to the people in the first deportation that eventually wound up in Babylon and to those that stayed. And then now we're in Ezekiel, who in Ezekiel is the person, the prophet who was carried off into Babylonian exile. And he preached to the exiles in Babylon. He, along with the fourth major prophet, Daniel, were carried off in that first deportation. And then the final deportation was when the city was completely wiped out. Daniel preached not only to the exiles, though prophesied not only to the exiles, but he prophesied to the pagan kings, to the Babylonian kings, to the Persian kings. So God, if you look at the major prophets, he covered the whole gamut. He made sure no one was left out, not even the Babylonian and the Persian kings. So we're finishing Ezekiel tonight. We will head into Daniel probably next week. Uh, and we'll see how far we get there. Then we give you this outline of Ezekiel. Starting with first three chapters. His commissioning. And in his commissioning he was given this vision. And then he was given this assignment. Very acid trip like vision for Ezekiel in that day and age. What he would have seen he would have not had the words to communicate. So he did the best he could. Uh, very technicolor pyrotechnics. Way beyond his imagination kind of thing. And that's how the book starts. And then you get through chapter 4 through 24. It's talking about the judgment of Jerusalem. And uh, the way God chooses to use Ezekiel to prophesy is he, he, he becomes a street performer, if you will. He actually acts out a lot of his prophecies. And, uh, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. And, and all of us learn differently. Some of us learn by hearing. Some of us learn by writing. Some, by, some of us learn by doing. Well, God took advantage of those learning styles. And he kind of poured all of them into Ezekiel. So when God wants to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, he has Ezekiel carve Jerusalem into a brick and build little siege mounds and attacks around it. And he basically creates a model of the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he makes him lay on one side for 390 days and eat nothing but a small amount of food, drink a small amount of water, and the food's cooked over cow dung. And he does that for 390 days and can't move, can't change that position, which is just strange. And then as soon as he gets done with that, you know he's got to be emaciated. You know he's so stiff and arthritic, he probably can't move. God move, flips him over on his right side, and he has to stay there for 90 days. So it's this kind of out of prophecy that God uses Ezekiel which makes Ezekiel a really between that and the visions he sees it's just a really strange book it's a book that kind of ranks right up there with revelation in, in its kind of weirdness sometimes but there was a method behind all that God was doing and so a lot of the prophecies about the judgment on Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem were acted out this way and then there's this big section that we really did kind of skip over about the judgment on all the surrounding nations. We stopped a little bit when we looked at the judgment on the king of Tyre because that's a passage that many people equate or associate with Satan. And like we said last week, in context, it's talking about the king of Tyre. But there's a lot of prophecies in Scripture that kind of have a dual purpose to them, a, a purpose for the context in which they're written and a purpose for a future context, and, and that very well could be one of them. But, but 
That's about all we touched on that section. And then we went into the fall of Jerusalem, chapter 33. And there's this, just this one chapter. Every, everything's going downhill, and at the very bottom, there's this cataclysmic final event where Jerusalem is destroyed. And then at that point, the book starts going uphill. The book stops talking about judgment once Jerusalem is destroyed and starts talking about hope and restoration and reconciliation. And, uh, and then we launched in last week, we didn't get completely finished, with the restoration of Israel and, and all of creation. And that's where we left it last night, we fi- or last week. We finished with the Valley of Dry Bones. And uh, if you'll remember, that's one of the most well-known passages of Ezekiel is when God takes Ezekiel out in the spirit to this valley that's just massive valley full of very, very dry, sun-baked bones. And God asks the prophet Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel wisely answers, you know. And so God tells him to prophesy over the bones. And then they begin to come together. Bone to bone, piece to piece, and then they begin to cover with sinew, and then flesh, and then skin, and then they stand before him as a mighty army, but they're still immobile. They're zombies, if you will. They, there's no life in them. They're just, they're mannequins. A massive army of mannequins. And then God breathes into them, and they have life. And it's God's way of saying, this is what I'm going to do to this nation. This nation is spiritually dead. Jerusalem, Judah, Judea, the, the Israelites, they're spiritually dead. They, they've ignored me and, and I'm taking them in exile. And for all practical purposes, they're just done. But I'm not going to let them be done. I'm going to put them back together. I'm going to breathe into them. And, and the message in that for us is you are never so done that God can't breathe into you and put you back together and do something with you. It is never too late. You know, you might say, well, Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls were kicked in. It was burned to the ground. It it became desolate. It's too late for them now. It's never too late according to Scripture. And God says, even though these bones are very, very dry, they can come back to life. And, And what brought them back to life is this. Two things. Ezekiel was told to prophesy over them, to speak the word of God over them. That's our part. And then God breathes life into them. That's his part. And anything you and I do for God is always going to have those two parts. It's always going to have a part where we have to be involved. We have to step up to the plate. We have to take a risk. We have to open our mouths. We have to try something. And when we do that, then God comes in behind and breathes life into it. Now, it would be really nice if God would just do that and we didn't have to take the risk. But that's not how he works. And so it's this weird combination of I have to be involved. And yet it's not really me, it's him. But he doesn't get involved until I get involved. And so it becomes this partnership, if you will. And uh, it's a... There's a lot in this story of the Valley of Dry Bones, but this is what God is saying. I want to resurrect them when I get my word back out there and in them, which is the part of the people, and when I breathe life into them. 
So let's finish up this restoration and then we're going to do some takeaways this evening. So we move from that valley of dry bones. It's almost like God is setting up the scenario and then he goes to talking about reuniting the kingdom. So if you got your Bible, look at chapter 37, starting in verse 15. Chapter 37, start with verse 15. It says this, The word of the Lord came to me, meaning Ezekiel, Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with them. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say, will you not tell us what, this mean, what you mean by this? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may become one in my hand. What God is doing here is he's promising to reunite a divided kingdom. You know, at the time of, of the Babylonian attack, there were two kingdoms. Well, let me back up. Before the Babylonian attack, there were two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel was even further ahead on their track of disobedience and ignoring God, and the Assyrians come in and wipe them out. And then the Babylonians come in and basically wipe out the nation of Judah. And so God's basically saying, I have two nations that for all practical purposes don't exist anymore. I'm going to resurrect them, breathe life, and I'm going to join them back together. When was the last time that these two kingdoms were together under one king? I'm not looking for a date, but... Hmm? Close. He said when David was king. When Solomon was king, there was the, the, the kingdom was formed under Saul, King Saul. And King Saul had no heart for God. I mean, he just, he, he was a king in look only, but not in heart. And so, David comes on the scene, slays Goliath, does a bunch of other things. The people love David. King Saul gets infuriatedly jealous over David, chases him in the wilderness, tries to kill him multiple times. And eventually God says, you know, enough's enough. And King Saul dies in battle and David becomes king. And that is kind of the Camelot years, if you will, starting with David and, and his son Saul become the Camelot years of, of the nation of Israel. And during David's kingdom, it was nothing but fighting and conquering and taking ground and taking cities and amassing wealth and, and he does all of this. And then he has this, this little indiscretion, if you will, with Bathsheba. And then David, although he remains a mighty king, starts kind of downhill slide. And when David passes away, his son Solomon becomes king. Solomon has a kingdom of peace. Solomon's not a man of war. He's not a battle guy. He's not a strategist. He's a diplomat. And there's this great reign of peace and they build up more wealth than you can even imagine. Remember Solomon prays to God and says, and God tells Solomon, you can have anything you want. Just ask for it and you can have it. And Solomon asked for wisdom 
so that he can guide the people. And God is so pleased with that. He not only makes him the wisest man on earth, but he makes him the richest man on earth and gives him everything else he didn't ask for. So this is a kingdom of lots of wealth and riches and wisdom and, and, and everything. But when Solomon dies, God had told him, you know, Solomon, had a, Solomon liked lots of things, and among those things was other women. You know, and for the smartest guy that ever lived on the planet to have, what, a thousand wives doesn't seem like a smart thing to me. I mean, it just seems like inviting trouble. Uh, but he started making these wedding alliances with other countries and, that he was not supposed to be marrying into and with. And so God says, okay, that's it. When you pass, this kingdom splits. And the kingdom splits when, when Solomon passes. And it's been two kingdoms ever since. Now, that's a big, long spiel to go into. But this is significant when God says, okay, both of these countries have been deported into exile. Now I'm going to put them together. I'm going to put them together like they were under David, under Solomon. That's a big promise, especially when everything's been burnt to the ground. Ever been that way? You ever in your life ever felt like things have been so burnt to the ground, there's just no way to bring it back? You know, maybe it's a job, maybe it's finances, maybe it's a relationship, maybe. But it just feels so destroyed that it's like, there's really no hope here. And I find it interesting that God waits until both nations are destroyed and deported and then says, now I'm going to put them back together. There's a word in that for us that, that we need to be mindful of. But not only does he promise to put the two kingdoms together like grafting two branches together, not only does he promise to do that, but God promises to reunite his people under one king or under one shepherd. Look at chapter 37 starting in verse 24. Listen to what it says. My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where, their, where your fathers lived. And they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in this land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel and my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now remember God's making this promise through Ezekiel to a bunch of people that had been yanked from their homes, made slaves, and now are living in servitude in Babylon. That's who he's talking to. Now help me understand something. How can David be the king and the shepherd who rules over this kingdom when David died generations before this was ever spoken by Ezekiel. How does that work? Hmm? So that you're the lineage of David, the family of David, someone from David's lineage from his generation or his ancestor, if you will. So who is it referring to? 
Hmm? Christ. It's referring to Christ. He is the son of David. He comes from the lineage of David. He's born in the town of Bethlehem. And so this is a prophecy not for an immediate fix. Which sometimes we, we, we default to immediate fixes. Well, I prayed and I prayed for the last week and nothing happened. So either God's not there or he doesn't love me. God's making a prophecy for generations to come. And you may say, well, that doesn't help me if I'm the one in exile. That doesn't help me. Maybe, maybe not. But he keeps his promises. So David is an ancestor. It speaks of the descendant of David. A person is described as one shepherd who would do what the other shepherds or the priest didn't do. Remember we read last week where the, the shepherds and the priests were taken to task by God because they weren't leading the people. They were fleecing the flock, if you will. They were, they were using their position for their own good. And, and God took them to task. So now he says he's going to put one shepherd who's going to be all over it. Now, keep your place there. Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Okay, and when you get to John chapter 10, look at verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. God keeps his promise. May not be as quickly as he, we want him to keep his promise. But Jesus basically speaks to what, Isaiah, what Ezekiel is prophesying. Ezekiel prophesies that God's going to put one shepherd, one son of David over all of his people. Jesus was that. He was from the lineage of David. He says, I am the good shepherd. And it says that under this shepherd, my dwelling place will be with them. God with us. That was Jesus' name, Emmanuel. He was called Emmanuel, God with us. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord. And he talks about setting up this covenant of peace with them. Jesus said on the Last Supper, a new covenant I make with you. So what you're reading here in Ezekiel in chapter 37 is a direct reference to Christ. So God's keeping his word. All right, that's the reuniting of two kingdoms. Now, let's look at the establishing of a new temple. In the final chapters, chapters like 40 through 48, the prophet is given this very, very specific vision. Ezekiel is given this very, very specific vision of a new temple. I mean down to dimensions. Down to the dimensions. Now, Ezekiel is 25 years into his captivity. Now, if you remember, he started prophesying five years after he went into Babylon. So Ezekiel's been prophesying for 20 years. He's been doing this for 20 years, and it's been a really tough gig, and he's been doing this for 20 years. And now, at the end of 20 years, there is this prophecy about a new temple. Look at 
verse, uh, chapter 40. In the 25th year of our exile, okay, first five years, Ezekiel hadn't been called to prophesy. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel. And he set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city. Remember in Ezekiel, a lot of times he'll say this was like this because he couldn't really explain it or describe it exactly in human terms. But it's something that was like the city. And verse 3. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing at the gateway. Okay, now what follows is this very detailed mapping out of this new temple. I mean, down to the dimensions, and everything gets measured out. Uh, one commentator said that because of all the measurements, it's, it's like this is some kind of prophetic building inspector. Uh, and, and, and we're not going to read through all this because I'm just telling you, it's just kind of boring. It really is because there's all kinds of measurements. And, but, but what he's doing is he's making a map, a measurement of this new temple. But here's what's important. That, that all the detailed measurements of the temple... More important than that is what flows out of the temple. Look at 40, chapter 47. See, all of this up to this point, from 40 to 47, this is all details about this new temple. And you can kind of get lost in it and say, well, what's the big deal here? But when you get to chapter 47, listen to what happens. Verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the thresholds of the temple, the south of the altar, and there, then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line his hand in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. That is a thousand five hundred feet. Okay? A thousand five hundred feet. And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Okay, follow me. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water as it was knee deep. And again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen, and it was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. Verse 6, And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. The image uh, is this. There is this river flowing out of the temple, this new temple, and and the, the messenger, if you will, takes Ezekiel and starts him into the river. And it starts ankle deep. And he walks a little ways. And then it gets knee deep. And then waist deep. And then it's getting deeper and deeper as it goes out. 
Okay, so it's kind of an odd vision. It's going deeper and deeper as it goes out. But this is referring to what? What's this referring to? Spread of the gospel. Yeah. In, in Scripture, water and, and, and rivers and often, often is kind of used as a, as a euphemism, if you will, uh, for the Spirit. That God's presence is here and His presence flows out. Now, if you live in an arid desert area, water is hugely important. Because without it, there's no life. So if you have this river flowing out, it's life flowing out. It provides life. It waters. It provides greenery. Things grow. Way more important to them than you and I. I mean, we turn on the tap and we have water. Leave the bathtub on long enough, it's going to overflow. We, we don't have that struggle. But in that area... Even a little stream was life-giving, but this is not just a little stream. This is a stream that just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper as you go into it. So it's this picture of life that flows out of the temple to the point of overflowing. Does it remind you of anything? Go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. Listen to this. See how it compares. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from where? From the throne of God. In the Old Testament, where is the presence of God? It's in the temple. It's in the holy of holies of the temple. So the river that's flowing out of the temple is actually flowing from the presence of God. You get to Revelation 22, there's this water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river is a tree of life with 12 kinds of fruits yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees are for the healings of the nation. So what you see in Ezekiel shows up again in the very last part of Scripture in the book of Revelation. And it's about wherever the presence of God is, there's this flowing stream of life and healing. It's kind of a reference back to Eden. It's kind of a reference back to Eden where everything was growing and everything was lush. And so basically God says, one way or another, in my time, in my way, we're going to put everything back together. We're going to put the two nations back together. We're going to put the temple back together. We're going to put paradise back together. We're going to put it all together. I know it's not this way now. That's what causes us so much grief and angst. But that's the plan. And we're on this side of the Old Testament when it comes to the plan. We're on, we're, we're on the plan here. So, the conclusion of this book is, it begins with a vision of God. It, get, it begins with this vision of God that's about power and massiveness and destruction and judgment. And then it ends with a vision of God that's about restoration 
and serenity and healing and putting things back together. The first is a message of judgment. The second is a message of provision and mercy. Isn't that the overarching message of God anyway? I mean, the overarching message is, I want this for you. And even if you go south and disregard and rebel and bad things happen, it still doesn't change what I want to do and how I'm going to do it. That even in the midst of difficulty, God still wants to restore. Yes? The question is, is the rebuilding of the temple something that's going to physically occur before Christ comes back? And the answer, from my standpoint, is I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, You read commentators and you'll hear both. You'll hear there's going to be a physical rebuilding of the temple on the Temple Mount, which, by the way, is the most hotly contested piece of real estate on the planet because it's where... Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where both Muslims and Jewish Christians, Jews and Christians, we all kind of vie for that land. So it's a hotly contested piece of pro- uh, property. It wasn't too long ago that the Jews put up metal detectors and it created a riot in that part of the territory. It does. He, he does talk about sacrifice. That's a piece of it that we kind of skimmed over and didn't touch. But yeah, he refers back to putting things back where God's presence is in the middle of his people and his people are worshiping and serving him like they're supposed to. Because that's what got them in trouble to start with is they didn't. And if you remember in the halfway through the book of Ezekiel, you see this vision of God's presence Rising up above the temple and then moving out of the temple and then moving out of the city and then just moving away. And so God's saying about halfway through in verse 30, in chapter 33, God's presence has left the temple. God's people are so rebellious that they wind up in destruction. And he said, in the end, we're going to put all that back together. So my presence will be back in the midst of my people. My people will be serving me and worshiping me as they should, which is the end of Revelation, which is the beginning of Genesis. He ties everything together that way. Yes? Uh, you know, it, it makes me think of uh, him bringing David to love. Uh, that's the music, that's the praise of Jesus that is in our Holy Spirit also. And about the water, there's this song, it's an old song. There's a fountain Mm-hmm. Yep, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and that's what this river is. I mean, if you lived in that part of the land, the Jordan River was a lifeline for you. Yes? Yes. I'm to understand that there's a direct correlation between Ezekiel 47 and Revelation 22. They sound very similar. They found, sound very similar. And it does tell us in Revelation that God's going to create a new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is the new city is going to come down from heaven as a bride adorned for her bridegroom. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's the kind of unspoken connection, if you will. So, what starts as kind of a thick book 
full of weird visions and, and threatenings of judgment and, and strange actions and dark judgment winds up being this picture of God and His plan and His purpose for all creation. To put everything back. I mean, Scripture says all of creation groans waiting for the restoration. So it's not just us. It's all of creation groans for that. So it's kind of interesting how the book starts off one way with one vision, ends another way with another vision, and somewhere in the midst of all that, God kind of brings the two together, which is what He does. All right, we need to do some takeaways because we can't leave this book without some takeaways. Here's some takeaways. Man, I am way behind in my slides here. Somebody should be paying attention here, don't you think? Here's the first takeaway. Our view of God is way too small. It just is. I don't care how big your view of God is, it's still too small. We have reduced God down to our size. I think that's one thing that that original vision in chapter 1 of Ezekiel is about. It is so massive. It is so hard to digest. It's so full of flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. It's so undescribable that God is just bigger. Bigger than the Babylonians. Bigger than the Babylonian captivity. Bigger than Jerusalem. Bigger than anything Isaiah 66 verse 1 says this, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What does that tell you about God? If heaven is his throne, if, first of all, if the earth is his footstool, that's a pretty big feat, right? I mean, just to kind of put it in those kind of terms. F-E-E-T. That's a big feat. F-E-E-T. But if, if, if all the heaven is the place where he sits, God's bigger than what we give him credit for. I think God's bigger than what we're able to give him credit for. I don't think our imagination stretched that far. Eye has not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man, Scripture says, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Stretch your imagination as far as you can, and God is still bigger. When's the last time you were overwhelmed by the vastness of God? I mean, when's the last time that you were overwhelmed by the enormity of His power or, or the purity of His character? When's the last time God just was so massive to you, He just took your breath away? When? Monday, yes. Yes, that was a good point. Yeah, it really was. Uh, and yet, think of this. He did that with a body in space that's so much smaller than earth. And another body in space that's so much larger than earth. And that body in space that's so much larger than earth that we call the sun is really pretty small and insignificant compared to other things in the space. And, and if God, according to Scripture, has filled space for His own PR, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, then He's massive. 
And that event on Monday comes around how often? You know, let's just round it to 100. Okay? And if that's the kind of thing it takes, us, takes for us to really grasp the massiveness and, and, and the celestialness, if you will, of God, once in every hundred years are pretty poor, you know? I think we can do better. Isaiah, when Isaiah gets his call to prophesy, he's overwhelmed by a vision of God who is so big, he's, over, he's spilling out of the temple he's that big. I wonder sometimes if we don't accomplish what we need to accomplish for God because our vision is too small. We've got to stop pontificating because we're going to run out of time. Takeaway number two. You may not be a prophet, but all believers have the same job description. To go where God tells you to go and to say what God tells you to say, whether anyone listens or not. We all have the same job description. That was, that was Jeremiah's job description. That's Ezekiel's job description. It's basically go where I tell you to go, say what I tell you to say, whether anybody pays attention or not. We all have that. It's the Great Commission. The Great Commission. You go into all the world. That's our job description. Each of us can carry out that job description differently depending upon where you are and who you are and how God's gifted you and, and the influence He's given you, but it's still all the same job description. Another takeaway. We're called to be watchmen and we will answer for how we've handled that responsibility. We're called to be watchmen who warn of approaching danger, who warn people of, of wrath and judgment, who warn people that... <clears throat> excuse me, who warn people that this is going to get us in trouble. We're also called to be watchmen who proclaim the goodness of God. We're responsible to do that. We are not responsible for the decisions people make. We are just responsible to carry out our assignment. The decisions are on them. But if we don't carry out our assignment, we are responsible for that. So however God calls you to do that, we're called to do that. You carry out God's assignment by, and this comes straight from chapter 3, I believe, from consuming His Word, obeying His Word stubbornly, and relying on His Spirit. Remember in chapter 3 where the prophet has this vision of, of one of God's messengers handing him a scroll, and he has to eat the scroll, consuming God's Word. God tells him, hey, the people you're going to prophesy to are hard-headed, they're stubborn, their forehead is like rocks, and you should be just the same way in carrying out your mission. So stubbornly obeying God's Word, relying on His Spirit, because God constantly says, you'll do this by My Spirit. If they turn, they'll turn by My Spirit. You have to rely on that. This is how we carry out our mission. This is how you do what God, whatever it is God's called you to do. You do it this way. And the minute you slack off on one of those, you'll limp in your mission. Another takeaway. God's presence is not guaranteed even just because you're in church. Where does that come from, from Ezekiel? Any ideas? Remember we talked about a few minutes ago God's presence leaving the temple. And when he left the temple, 
They didn't even recognize it. Solomon, not Solomon, excuse me, Samson. Samson, when God's presence left him, he didn't even realize it, didn't even know. So God's presence is not a guarantee. Now, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you, okay? So we're not talking about that necessarily. But just because you come to church, just because you read your Bible, just because you do these things doesn't guarantee God's presence. Go back to the last takeaway. It's consuming His Word, stubbornly obeying what He tells you to do, relying on His Spirit. That will make sure that you're living in the presence of God. But not just your location, if you will. Um, We better move on. Usually if I have to stop and think about something that long, it's probably something I shouldn't do. So, I'll just move on. Another takeaway. Others can influence you towards righteousness or sin, but you're responsible for the choice. You're responsible for the choice. This is where this weird little parable comes in in chapter 18, where God tells the people, you can no longer use this parable. The, the fathers eat sour grapes and their children's teeth are set on the edge. It's kind of a quirky way of saying, you can no longer say that, well, this is not my fault. It's the people behind me, my parents and everybody else that did such and such. Goes on and says, the soul that sins, it will die. Basically what it's saying is, do people influence us? Yes. People can influence us for good. People can influence us for evil. But ultimately, the choice belongs to us. The influence is about explanation. But to say, I'm doing this because they did this, that's excuse. We can have explanation. You just can't use it as excuse. So we are responsible for our choices. Others can influence you. Excuse me, I'm behind my, I can't even keep up with myself now. <clears throat> Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, God's desire has been to rescue and restore. And nothing or no one is ever too far gone to be rescued and restored. It's the way it's been since the fall. And we need to, we need to remember that. And, and if you've had a lot of bad experiences in life, it can lead you to believe that that's more pie in the sky than it is real. But we have to keep realizing that God doesn't give up. People give up. God doesn't give up. That doesn't mean everything's going to work out the way you want it to, because sometimes people just say no, and I don't want to do that. But as a whole, God never gives up. All right. That's the story behind the Valley of Dry Bones, that restoration and that rescue. All right, I'm going to give you one more takeaway. Our rescue and our restoration can only come through our submission to the presence and the movement of God's Spirit. God will not rescue you if you keep fighting Him. He'll keep pursuing you, but He can't rescue you if you keep refusing. Remember the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and tells Jesus, you know, what do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. And he lists off the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, I've kept every one of those. First of all, I 
It's a little doubtful, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. I've kept all, every one of those. And, and Scripture specifically says that Jesus looked at this man and loved him. So there's no doubt about Jesus' feelings for this young man. He loved him. So Jesus says, you, you really only lack one thing. Just one thing, that's it. You need to sell everything you got and give it to the poor and follow me. And Scripture says the man hung his head and turned and walked away. And Jesus didn't chase him. That always seems interesting to me because if I'd been Jesus, I'd been saying, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, this is easy. Just one thing, I'd come back. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. Why? Because you can't rescue someone who keeps refusing. They always tell you that if you're trying to save someone who's drowning, you have to wait until they give up first because if you don't, they will pull you under with them. You have to submit. You have to, resist. You have to lay down your arms. You can't keep refusing. Uh, so what does that mean for us? What does this mean for us? Hmm? Press on. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. We have to be in God's will. Yeah, but how does that happen, being in God's will? Prayer. Prayer? Prayer. Part of it? Okay, I'm really going to throw you for a loop now. Do you realize that every one of us in this room is trying to come up with a box to check or something to do or a task to undertake so we can ensure this happens? Maybe it's just surrender. Maybe it's just inviting in. Maybe it's just staying in the presence of. Because if, you, if I can figure out the box to check and the things I need to do to make this happen, then doesn't that make me more God than God? And, and I like that. I want you to show me a formula of the things I need to do because then I can feel like I can control the fates so that nothing bad happens. And, and so, it's like your children trying to figure out the angles to work to get you to give them what they want rather than just being glad you're their parent or being glad to be in your presence. It's so easy for us, even without meaning to. I mean, we, we talk about, let's, we got to do the spiritual disciplines. We got to, you know, we should pray and, and we should praise and we should worship and absolutely we should do all those things. But if we're doing those to accomplish something other than just understanding and enjoying God's presence, then we're trying to work a system. That right there just blew a bunch of people's minds all, all at once right there. Because it's so antithetical to how we think. Okay, questions, comments. We're going to stop with Ezekiel. We're done with Ezekiel for now. Questions, comments. Yes, I'm sorry. Okay. Yes. Yes. 
Because the flesh just wants to keep living, doesn't it? She said, I was saved long before I surrendered. The flesh just wants to keep going. Absolutely. Anyone else? There's nothing that we can do to be saved. There's nothing that we can do to... I mean, and, and we, we're Americans. We feel like we can work stuff out. But it's about humility and submission and dependence. That doesn't mean there's not things for us to do. Uh, but we do them out of submission, not out of trying to get control. It's a really hard concept. I'm not sure I get it all the time. All right, anything else? Yes? Well, I was thinking about um, one of the things in Scripture is you forgotten your first love. Yes. So that we need to have that relationship with Him. How do you get that? Well, it's not through the to-do list. It's getting to the word, being intimate with Him and saying, look, this is how I'm feeling. Help me. So, no, I don't want to feel this way or whatever your issue is at the time that is driving you nuts. Right. So returning back to your first love. How many of you remember when, when you just couldn't be apart from your spouse? You know, you were dating and you just couldn't, I can't breathe if I'm not with them. You know, that kind of thing. You remember that? Somewhere along the line it came to, came to I don't know if I can be with them anymore, you know? Uh, i got to stand with them too. I can't stand them. You know, went to that thing. But that comes from being in the presence. That comes from listening. That comes from serving. Uh, That comes from appreciating. That comes from all those things that... We do a lot of things when we're dating to try to catch them, so to speak. Uh, But the falling in love piece comes more from just the presence of. And yeah, God wants a relationship with us like that. From the church. So we can, we can be, um, we can, but we, if we're not being the church, then God's spirit may not be right. Yes. And I'm going to leave you with this one little mind twister, and then I'm going to say amen before anybody can argue. Uh, when Scripture talks about coming back to our first love, it's not the person we loved first. It's the person who first loved us. Coming back to your first love is coming back to the person who loved you first in spite of before you were even created. You get a handle on that person, everything else will line up. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for this book. It's a hard book. I, I admit, Father, I confess that I wasn't really eager to wade into this book because it's a very difficult book. And yet there is so much there, Father, that for us a lot of rich things that we just barely scratched the surface in but I pray that you would again grab something from this evening and and nail it down into our hearts so that we can't get away from it flash it in front of our eyes so that we constantly see it do whatever you need to do to help us take what you're trying to tell us and make it our own and live it out somehow some way 
And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.